Good morning again. As we begin today, I want to ask this question. What is the church's greatest threat? What is the church's greatest threat? We read a few chapters ago in Matthew 16, Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So when we hear that, at least one thing that we need to understand is the reality that Christ's church will face opposition. That opposition will not prevail against the church, but it will be there. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We will face opposition, but what is it that poses the greatest threat to us out of all the opposition that we will face on this side of eternity? Is our greatest threat the world? When we think about it, the world wields the double-edged sword of allurement and persecution. It draws us in to its riches and its pleasures and its wants, but it also comes against us in hatred. The world desires to swallow up the church one way or the other. The world is a threat to the church, but it is not our greatest threat. Is our greatest threat the devil? Is our greatest threat Satan, spiritual opposition? Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of evil. Peter tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know from the New Testament that he actively opposed the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas. He actively sought to stifle the faith of new believers. Satan wants to destroy the church. However, Satan is not our greatest threat either. The greatest threat facing any church is ultimately its own sin. The world can entice us, and the world can persecute us, but it cannot condemn us. Satan can oppose us, and Satan can accuse us, but he cannot pronounce judgment over us. Think about it this way. Jesus himself faced the strongest possible onslaught of opposition from this world and from the devil. No one has ever faced opposition like Jesus did, but he was victorious because he remained obedient to his Father through that opposition. You see, the opposition of the world and the opposition of Satan can only be effective against us if it leads us to follow our sinful desires. It's our own sin that's our greatest threat. It's our own sin that is the thing that will keep us from fulfilling Christ's purposes for us. And it's our own sin, which we know wages war against our souls, that if we leave it free to do its work, it will ultimately destroy us. Well, this brings us to the main idea of this morning's message. Because our own sin is the greatest threat to our church, we must be faithful to address it. Because our own sin is the greatest threat to our church, we must be faithful to address it. And the good news this morning is that Jesus Christ equips us with everything that we need to faithfully address sin in our midst. Jesus Christ equips us with everything we need to faithfully deal with our own sin. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 18. 
Matthew 18 this morning. We are continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. This whole series has been about, first, who is Jesus? He is the fulfillment of all of God's saving promises in the scriptures. And it's a call to follow him, to give your heart to him and your life to him as a disciple of his. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him on the path to eternal life. Our passage today is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 20. As the Gospel of Matthew is unfolding, as we kind of stand above the book and see it unfolding, we're at a point that's getting nearer and nearer to what is called Jesus' passion, the final week of Jesus' life. We're almost to the point where we will see his sufferings and his death and ultimately his resurrection. Jesus knew that these events were drawing near. And we've seen a shift in his ministry. He's begun to prepare his disciples for what is to come. Not only for the events of his passion themselves, but also for what is to come after he ascends into heaven. And for their responsibility to lead his church when that time comes. And in Matthew 18, Jesus is equipping his disciples to lead his church when the inevitable reality of sin rears its head. He's giving instructions to his disciples. Here is how to address sin, which is our greatest threat when it comes. So let's read the passage starting in Matthew 18. We're reading verses 1 through 20 this morning. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Because our own sin is the greatest threat to our church, we must be faithful to address it. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us four things that we need to remember whenever we are addressing sin. Four things that we need to remember whenever we are addressing sin in the midst of the church. First thing we see in this passage is the prerequisite for addressing sin. The prerequisite for addressing sin. So the entire passage begins with the disciples bringing this question to Jesus in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now we might be tempted to read that as an innocent Bible study question. Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? Is it David? Jesus, who's the greatest? We need to understand that's not the question they were asking. The other gospel accounts inform us that they were arguing with each other about which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We can imagine the conversation. Peter may have said, I'm obviously the greatest. Jesus just called me the rock of the church. But then Thomas might have said, yeah, but then he called you Satan, Peter. James and John would have chimed in and said, you're out. He took us up the mountain with him. I bet you guys wish you knew what happened on that mountain, don't you? Not supposed to tell. It's pretty awesome, though, right? The whole discussion seems so arrogant and prideful, and it was. There's no way around it. The reason they were discussing this was probably because they were still anticipating an earthly kingdom. Jesus was going to establish his kingdom there in Israel, in Jerusalem. They're wondering which of us is going to be Jesus' right-hand man, so to speak. And so their question comes to Jesus, and it gives him the occasion to remind them of something that we must never forget, and that's the necessity of humility. The necessity of humility. Look at how Jesus responds in verses 2 through 4. He calls to him a child, and he puts the child in the midst of them, He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't answer their question directly. Jesus almost never answers questions directly. Instead, he calls a nearby child. He puts him in the center of the room and says, do you want to be great in the kingdom? And you have to become like this child. In fact, Unless you become like this child, you can't even be a part of the kingdom. Stop thinking about greatness. Just think about entrance. If you don't become like a child, you can't be part of the kingdom. Well, what aspect of childlikeness is Jesus drawing their attention to specifically? There's so many ways you could go with that, right? But he tells us, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child. He's calling for a childlike humility. Now, we need to say... Children are not self-consciously humble. (laughs) We all know that humility is a lesson that children need to learn as well. The world does not revolve around them after all. The point is that little children actually are humble. They might not know it, but they are. They're totally dependent. They're absolutely needy. They're entirely unable to do anything without the help of their parents. The disciples' argument about who is the greatest would have been centered on their credentials. It would have been centered on their gifts. It would have been centered on what they bring to the table. And Jesus says to them, unless you realize that you bring nothing to the table, that you have no credentials, that you are utterly dependent, you have no share in the kingdom. 
This is the same exact message of the first beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come and say, I have nothing to claim. I have nothing to offer. I have, I have nothing to merit my stake in the kingdom. I come poor in spirit. Childlike humility is the prerequisite for entrance into God's kingdom. Until you come to the end of yourself, you cannot come to Christ. That, 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 is, that is integral to the gospel. Unless you come to the end of yourself, you cannot come to Christ. You cannot come to Christ bringing anything with you to claim. You must come empty, poor, dependent. And likewise, until you come to the end of yourself, you cannot come to someone else who's struggling with sin and seek to help them. You cannot come with pride to help someone who is in sin. This connection between personal humility and addressing the sin of another is in the structure of the entire passage. The whole chapter is structured this way. Humility and then addressing sin. Humility is the prerequisite for addressing sin. And we've seen this before. This is Jesus' point in the parable in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but not the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you can clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, we don't come to each other as self-righteous people. We come as dependent people and repenting people. We come as those who are poor in spirit before God, those who are little children before our Father. We come as those who understand, I have had a log in my eye that I've had to remove so I can take the speck out of your eye. We come as fellow sinners pointing each other to the Savior. I want to ask if you turned and become like a child. Have you come to the end of yourself and recognized your complete dependence on God for forgiveness and for righteousness and eternal life? Have you become poor in spirit before him? Unless you humble yourself like a child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can never help your brother with their sin. But whoever does humble himself like a child, Jesus says, is the greatest in the kingdom. So this is the first thing we need to remember when we are addressing sin, the prerequisite of humility. The prerequisite of humility. We must start with humility. This leads to the second thing we need to remember. Whenever we are addressing sin in our midst, the priorities for addressing sin. The priorities for addressing sin. We had the prerequisite, and now we have the priorities for addressing sin. It is all too easy to lose sight of our priorities. So, as an example, think about going on a vacation with your family. What are the priorities for you when you go on a vacation? It's, it's to spend quality time together. It's to relax. It's to set a slower pace. It's to just enjoy the journey, right? But, what happens when the car ride begins? an unspoken shift in priorities takes place. All of a sudden, the priority is we need to get there as fast as we possibly can. And that creates a journey that is not very fun or enjoyable or restful or relaxing or anything else that we might have set out to do in the first place. And the problem is if you do that on the way back too, then you need a vacation again, right? We easily lose sight of our priorities. 
Well, when it comes to addressing sin, it is easy for unspoken shifts in our priorities to take place. We suddenly begin to prioritize getting back at someone who hurt us or maintaining a positive reputation with people who criticize us or catering to the desires of people who have a large amount of influence among us. If we are to address sin faithfully, we must be vigilant to remember the priorities of Christ. And in verses 5 through 14, Jesus gives us the two priorities that must remain front and center. There's two priorities that need to be in the front of our minds whenever we are addressing sin. The first one is the priority of protecting the body. The priority of protecting the body. I want you to see how this develops in verses 5 through 9. First, Jesus gives a somber warning to anyone who causes one of his own disciples, those who have humbled themselves, God's little children, to sin. He says in verses 5 through 7, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. When Jesus says these little ones in these verses, he's describing true disciples, those who have heard his call to become like children, those who have humbled themselves like a child and trusted in him. Whoever has done this is one of God's own children. And just as there's nothing more grievous to a parent in the world than someone harming one of their own children, so also God gives a fearsome warning to anyone who would lead one of his children into sin. Jesus pronounces woe on this person, judgment on this person. He says it would literally be better to be drowned than to be the one who causes one of God's children to sin. A millstone, if you've ever seen a millstone, it's about this tall, this thick. It's a huge, heavy cement block that would be wrapped around your neck and you, you, you couldn't get up. The point is that it took you down and you could not, that, that's the image he uses. It's, it's, it's meant to be fearsome because this is so serious. These are weighty and fear-inducing words. The eternal and righteous wrath of God is the judgment for those who lead one of his children to sin. It would be better for that to happen to you than to face the wrath of God for leading one of his children into sin. Now look at what he says next in verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now if you were with us earlier in the series, you remember that Jesus gave these exact instructions in Matthew 5. There, Jesus was calling us to fight the sin of lust by taking radical measures to resist temptations. The principle was this, protect yourself from whatever causes you to sin at any cost. Whatever it is that's causing you to sin, get rid of that thing. Take radical measures so that you are not led into sin. Now why does Jesus bring this principle up here in this context? We need to follow the logic of these verses. He's using the same principle to make a unique application. Think about it. He warns about the judgment that will come on whoever causes one of his disciples to sin. And then he instructs the disciples to cut off whatever causes them to sin. So the word causes is what ties it all together. 
and shows us what Jesus is getting at. Get rid of whatever's causing you to sin. What he's getting at is that we must protect his body. We must protect his little ones. We must protect his church from the dangerous influence of those who would lead them into sin. This is the first priority when we're addressing sin, to protect the church, to protect God's people. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 5. That context is also dealing with sin in the church. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the point is, unaddressed sin in the church is dangerous. When we allow sin to go unchecked and unaddressed in the church, it will spread and affect the whole church. A church member who's living in sin will influence the whole church, and therefore we must do whatever it takes to protect Christ's body, to protect God's little ones. This is the first priority, to protect the church, protect his little ones. But it's not the only priority. There's two priorities we have to always balance. Not only to protect the body, but secondly, the priority of restoring the one who is going astray. The priority of restoration of those who stray. Look at 10 through 14 again. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Listen, it is tempting for us to despise straying sheep. We need to understand that. When when someone is straying, when when a church member is in sin, it's tempting to despise that person. Why, Why would that be? Well, often we feel firsthand their sins. Often their sins are actually against us. We've been, we're the ones that are hurt by them. But Jesus says, don't despise them. Don't despise one of these little ones. Don't grow embittered against them. Don't harden your heart to them. Don't wish ill for them. Instead, hear the Father's heart for them. He says, in love the Father has set his angels over his people to watch and care for them. The Father's heart is like the heart of a shepherd that goes after the one sheep who strays away. He pursues that sheep. He tracks down that sheep. When he finds that sheep, he rejoices in that sheep. It's not his will that one sheep should be lost. This is the Father's heart for his little ones who are in sin. And his heart must be our heart. Each one of us must long for and go after and track down and rejoice in the restoration of any one of God's children who goes astray in sin. These are the two priorities that we must always remember when we're addressing sin. The protection of the body and the restoration of the one who's going astray. The protection of the whole church and the restoration of the sheep who is straying. These are the priorities of a good shepherd, aren't they? To protect the flock from wolves and yet to go after the one sheep that belongs to that shepherd. This is what a good shepherd does. This is what we are called to do. But here's the thing, these dual priorities can be difficult to keep in balance, can't they? We often struggle to walk the line between protecting the body and pursuing those who stray. We need help for this, and thankfully Jesus provides us with his perfectly wise instructions for this very task. This brings us to the third thing we need to remember when we address sin, the process for addressing sin. The process for addressing sin. 
The process that Jesus gives in verses 15 through 17 is not simply a suggestion. This is not one possible way that we might address sin out of many options. No, the process Jesus gives us in verses 15 through 17 is the only way that we can balance these two priorities of restoring the one who's strained and protecting the body from the influence of sin. We cannot protect the body and restore the wanderer any other way. So church, these are Christ's authoritative instructions to us, and we have to commit ourselves to following them faithfully. There are four steps in the process Jesus gives, and as we walk through these steps, let me say first that Jesus puts no timetable on this process. These steps could take a month, they could take a year. We always need to walk through them prayerfully and with much counsel and wisdom. With that said, the first step is in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, one important thing to know is that the words against you may or may not be part of the original text. There's, there's some evidence that they were added later by a scribe and then copied from there later on. And so the reason that's important is because we might say, well, this only applies when someone has sinned against me. But we know from other scriptures that that's not the case. Galatians 6 tells us, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So these instructions don't just apply when someone sins against you. They apply whenever you see a brother in sin. When that happens, when you see a brother or sister entangled in sin, what should you do? And Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Understand, church, Jesus does not say, if your brother sins, turn a blind eye. He does not say, if your brother sins, go talk to other church members about it. He says, if your brother sins, go to him in private alone, one-on-one, -on -one, and tell him his fault. Get together for coffee, and in love and grace, tell your brother or sister, I'm concerned for you. I've noticed something in your life that I wanted to ask you about. I love you, and that's why I wanted to bring this up with you. This is what each one of us is called to. Now, when we do this, Jesus says that they may listen, and that they may repent Sometimes, we may say even often, the first step is all it takes. We must not skip this step, church. The reality is that every one of us is prone to wander. We're all prone to wander. And we all need to have a level of relationship with others in the body so that when we do wander, there's someone there who knows us well enough and loves us deeply enough that they're going to come to us and they're going to express concern for us. This, this is just one reason why we do discipleship groups, because you need people that know you and that can see your life and, and, and come to you and say, I'm going to take this first step. I'm going to go to my brother and I'm going to tell him, I, I see something in your life that concerns me. I want to ask you about it because I love you. Let people into your life so that if you begin to wander, you already have a depth of relationship there so that Others can take these first steps toward you and be ready to take these first steps toward others. Listen, by God's grace, we can be restored from the vast majority of our wandering through these one-on-one -on -one conversations with each other. Th th this is often where this process should end, right here. Someone comes to you and you say, thank you, for, thank you for telling me. Pray for me as I seek to repent from that. However, if they don't listen in that one-on-one -on -one conversation, Jesus gives a second step. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
So if they don't listen to you, when you come one-on-one, Jesus says, bring one or two others with you. Widen the circle of who's aware of this person's sin just a little bit for the sake of love. And with one or two others, you come to them again, and again, you say, we love you. We're concerned for you. We want to call you to repent. Having one or two others with you serves both to increase the weight of love and concern to that person, and it testifies to the reality of their sin if they still don't listen, which leads to the third step. Verse 17, if you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. So you've reached out one-on-one, and they didn't listen. You brought one or two others, there still is a refusal to listen and repent. And so the third step is to tell it to the church. In wisdom, this would normally mean that you inform your pastors about what's been going on. Then the pastors lead the way in letting the church know that one of its members is living in unrepentant sin. And then together, the whole church is now calling this person to repent. The whole church is reaching out in a variety of ways with the words, we love you, we're concerned for you, we urge you to turn away from this sin. And if even then the person still does not listen, Jesus gives a fourth and final step. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, the church is no longer to affirm that person's profession of faith in Christ. The church no longer says to someone who they had said in membership, you are a believer, they no longer say that. They say, say, we cannot affirm that you are truly a follower of Jesus because of your unrepentance. The only conclusion the church can faithfully hold is that for whatever they may claim to believe, whatever evidence they may have shown in the past, unless they repent, they are not truly disciples of Christ. This final step is a warning to this person of their spiritual state Even this step is meant to restore them that they might be moved by the fear of that action to finally repent. But it's also a means of protecting the body. It's a means of not allowing someone in the body who will influence the little ones of God to sin and and toward evil. And so in this final stage, the church removes the one who's unrepentant from its membership and entrusts them to the Lord in prayer. That's the process Jesus gives us for addressing sin. And I want to point out again that it reflects those two priorities that we're given. This process is the only means that we can both lovingly pursue the restoration of a member who's wandering and lovingly protect the body from their influence if they're unrepentant. This is the only way to do both those things at once. Now we need to recognize this, church. The world looks at this process as unloving. The world looks at this process as judgmental. But if sin is real, if death and hell are real, if Christ and repentance and the kingdom and eternity are all real, then this is truly the path of love. If the gospel is true, then what could be more loving than pursuing someone who's on a path to eternal ruin and at the same time protecting those who could be harmed by their sin themselves? This is the path of love that we need to walk. That doesn't make it any less difficult, though. Sometimes it can be painful to love somebody the way that they need to be loved, and Jesus is aware of this in addressing sin, that this path can be a painful path. And so he concludes his instructions with the fourth thing that we need to remember whenever we address sin, which is his promises to us, Christ's promises for addressing sin. Church, knowing the difficulty and the pain of addressing sin in the church, 
especially when the person does not repent. Jesus encourages us with three promises that we need to always remember. First, in verse 18, he promises that we have authority for these actions. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are the same words Jesus spoke to Peter in Matthew 16 after he confessed Jesus is the Christ. But there's a difference here. If we could read it in the original, we'd see that these are plural verbs. These are y'all verbs. Okay? The only authority, the authority he gave to Peter, he gives to all of us. And what is that authority? It's not the authority to save someone or condemn someone. We can't do that. We, we, don't, we don't save anyone. We don't condemn anyone. That authority belongs to God alone. Rather, it's the authority to affirm or deny someone's membership in God's kingdom, which is made visible here in the church. It's the authority to bind someone who repents and believes through baptism and membership, and it's the authority to loose someone who's unrepentant from the church through the process of discipline. And here's why this is encouraging, because when we address sin, we need to remember that we are acting within the realm of responsibility that Christ has given to us. It is easy to second guess and to wonder, should we do this? Should we do this to be tempted by what would people think if we do this? But Christ has commissioned us for both of these things, binding and loosing. We must not be a church that binds but doesn't loose. Must not be a church that embraces but does not then draw the line and say, you are no longer living in accord with the way of Christ. And Jesus promises, I've given you authority for these things. Not only does he promise that we have authority, next in verse 19, this is amazing, he promises that God will answer our prayers through this process. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is an incredible promise to the gathered church. Even in the smallest gatherings, when we gather in Jesus' name, and we unite our minds and hearts in prayer to the Father, Jesus promises the Father will do whatever we ask. Now we need to read this in context. This is not saying, so come and, and give your dream list to God and, and, and he'll do whatever you want. No, this is, this is bound up with the situation of addressing sin. Which teaches us, first of all, listen, this is so important, teaches us, first of all, that this whole process needs to be saturated with prayer. If we go through those steps prayerlessly, we are not being faithful in them. We must begin with prayer, humbling ourselves, Asking, where's the log in my own eye? Becoming like children again. Praying before we go to the person. Praying for their response. Praying as they, as they listen. Praying if they don't repent. Praying together as a church. We must continually pray for this person through this process. And Jesus promises that as we do, as we pray, uniting our minds and hearts, the Father will answer our prayers. What does, that, what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that the person will always be restored. It means that we're recognizing the truth that the Father's will is that none of these little ones should perish. And so as we pray, we pray this way. Father, if this person is one of your children, bring them back to repentance and faith. If this person is truly a follower of Christ, please restore them to fellowship. If this person is truly our brother, please grant him the godly sorrow that leads to life. That's the promise. That's the promise. When we pray that way, God will restore his children. He will do what we ask. When one of his children strays and we unite our minds in prayer for that person, 
God will bring them back. We can be confident of that. No one who is truly his will fail to be brought back. He'll use our prayers in that process. The final promise comes in verse 20, and it's a precious promise, church. He promises his very presence with us in these things. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Isn't this what we want when we gather for church? Like we come here and we sing and we pray and we listen to the word and we fellowship because we want to experience the presence of Christ. And he does meet us in all of those things. He meets us in our singing. He meets us in our praying. He meets us in our sermons. He meets us in our fellowship. He does. But consider this. This is the one place in Scripture where Christ himself explicitly promises that he will meet us with his presence. Here in the context of addressing sin. I said at the beginning of the message that we need to address sin because it's our greatest threat. But here we see an even greater motivation. We must faithfully address our own sin because when we do, we are inviting the presence of Christ himself to be with us. When we address sin faithfully the way he's described, we are inviting Christ to be with us. Christ is with the church that faithfully addresses sin in his name. And that is an incredible thing to remember when you're walking through those painful waters. He will be with us. He will meet us. He will bless us. He will sustain us. He is for us. Christ is with the church that faithfully addresses sin in his name. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. Whenever we are required to address sin, by loosing someone from the church. We do that with heavy and broken hearts. And yet, in that sorrow and brokenness, Christ meets us with the comfort and power of his own presence. When we gather in his name to faithfully address sin, he is with us. And church, as we close, consider the incredible grace of that statement. He is with us. Who are we? Well, we ourselves are sinful people who deserve nothing but death and wrath and separation from his presence forever and ever. He says, I will be with you. How is he with us? He's with us on the basis of his death for us. He gave these instructions to the disciples. He gave this promise to these disciples. But then he would go on from there to Jerusalem, to the cross, to his death, to make a way for him to actually be with them and with us today. He came after us when we were straying. He laid down his life for us and he rejoices in our restoration to himself. Now he blesses us with with his very presence whenever we repent of our sins and as we help each other to repent. And church, one final great encouragement is because of what he's done for us, For anyone who's repented of their sins and trusted in him, do you know that one day none of this will be necessary anymore? The instructions of Matthew 18 will be behind us because when we see him, we will be like him and we will no longer desire to sin. We will no longer be prone to wander. We won't sing that in heaven. 
We won't sing prone to wander, Lord. We, we, we will sing praise the Lamb who has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom of priests. One day our warfare with sin will be over, and so let's not grow discouraged today when we have to address sin among us. He will use you and me to help each other reach that day. But that day will come when we will not sin anymore. As the music team comes up, I want to close by having us sing the verse from There is a Fountain that will be on the screen here. Let's, let's sing this verse together, church, as we close and rejoice that because of what he's done for us, we will reach the end. Sin is our greatest threat, but it will not destroy those who belong to Jesus. So let's sing this together. Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more.